Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to Corner Kick. But if you were looking for the podcast, I'm afraid that you have uh, stumbled upon our side hustle, Corner Kick Landscaping and Flooring. This is our side. This is our side venture. Um, if you're looking for the Corner Kick podcast, perhaps you've come to the wrong place. No, I'm just kidding. We've had quite an eventful weekend, both from a news perspective and a soccer perspective. And uh, <laughs> due to failings in our recording software, we're doing this on Zoom for the first time. So apologies for any technical issues that may arise, but we hope we will be coming crystal clear uh, as per usual. But lads, big weekends. You know, rarely do we start in this nation, but we're going to start in Germany, in the Bundesliga with Der Klassiker. It was a 3-2 win for Bayern Munich. I think it was a little bit, you know, more uncomfortable than you would like it to have been if you're a Bayern Munich fan. Bayern remained at the top of the Bundesliga. Borussia Dortmunds, who have scored all kinds of goals this season, in the end, at the end of the day, aren't clinical enough to get the job done. Nathan, what did you make of, uh, of this massive Bundesliga clash? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Hope hope Joshua Kimmich can uh, recover soon. We're we're very big Kimmich fans uh, on this podcast, just of in terms of like his ability as a player. Um, also interesting that he got injured while also receiving a tackle that led to him getting booked at the same time. Um, partly because Erling, Erling Holland is part man, part machine, um, but definitely sending our best wishes along. And if there's a team in the world that can withstand losing a world class midfielder, it would be. Bayern, who seem to have an infinite number of ways to line up. They have, obviously, Corentin Tolisso on the bench. They have Javi Martinez, who can play center back or center defensive mid. They have Mark Roca, who they brought in this summer from Espanyol. Um, they could even drop Mueller deeper and play one another winger like Sané or Douglas Costa. Like, this team's depth is just obscene. The fact is, they will continue to soldier on. In terms of the game itself, I thought Dortmund, the game was... a a little less close than I think the 3-2 scoreline indicates. I think 3-1 or 4-1 would have been a more fair reflection of how play went. Um, Holland pulled one back in the 83rd minute, but he had missed a couple of really good chances early on in the game that demonstrated his ability to, I think, get into good positions. But maybe he doesn't quite have the finesse that's necessary to take on some of the chances that he gets because they're from some pretty acute angles. And he's, he's very good at being fast and physical and finding himself in the center of the box. But he had a couple chances on his left foot that he just couldn't guide like towards the goal. And they ended up veering off towards the sidelines. So I think that's definitely a weakness in his game. But all in all, Byron, we're just much the better team. Um, they're so lethal on the counterattack. Their wingbacks are able to push up really high, which is nice. Serge Gnabry looked good. Thomas Mueller looked good. Lewandowski could have had like two or three goals. Just, just by virtue of the sheer volume of chances they create, they're going to be able to outscore pretty much uh, all teams. Like they created 13 chances, they were still able to to be clinical in a very Bayern-like fashion. So, encouraging stuff for Hans Dieter Flick, and maybe less encouraging stuff for Dortmund. Yeah, I feel like if Dortmund couldn't win this game today or over the weekend, they're never winning this game. I mean, this was the best. Dortmund performance we've seen in a Der Klassiker in a long time. I feel like they're always getting drubbed like 4-0 um, when the Bundesliga is on the line. But Dortmund's, you know, outshot, outpossessed, outpassed, outdribbled, outtackled, and out-corner kicked uh, Bayern on the day. But it was just their inability to be as clinical, their inability to hold on to leads. Like they took the lead at the end of the first half and then right what was it on the stroke of halftime pretty much Alaba scored like a perfectly placed uh set piece and so I think this is a pretty this is honestly more demoralizing for Dortmund than most their classic or losses are because for once they got close they really really got close as it turned out they just didn't have the resources off the bench that Bayern could like when Bayern needed a, something to change that up they brought on Leroy Sané off the bench I don't mean to like cast aspersions on like Julian Bront or Thorgan Hazard, 
but they are nowhere as influential as someone like Leroy Sané is. And I think on a day when Jaden Sancho and Gio Reyna didn't really hit top gear, you, you kind of wonder what this Dortmund team thinks they can do in their reverse fixture at the end of the season. I think the person that I feel the worst for coming out of this game is Marco Royce. Because I think he's often been the forgotten man for Dortmund in the past couple of seasons, especially as they've accumulated talent like Sancho, like Holland, like Gio Reyna. And I just think that with his experience, he should have definitely finished off more of those chances that Dortmund were getting. I think there was obviously the one in the second half, which he you know doesn't hit cleanly on the volley and it goes sailing over the top of the bar. If you look at Bayern Munich, sure, they have you know youthful players like Alfonso Davies, like Serge Gnabry coming through the ranks. But the people who have powered, you know, their resurgence to the top of the game have been Robert Lewandowski, have been Thomas Muller, have been Joshua Kimmich, who has been like a fixture of this team since he was a teenager. And I just think if you look over at the Dortmund side, the players that we rave about have only really, you know, experienced top level football for one to two years, right? You know, Holland, we've only really heard of for the past year and a half. Sancho has come to prominence over the last year. Giorena probably over the last six months. And I just think in this game, you did see a little bit of experience versus inexperience, especially when it came to Lewandowski taking his chances and Holland not taking that chance until, you know, it was a little bit too late when he rounded the corner and beat Neuer. Yeah, I agree with you, Caleb. I think if you're Dortmund, this was this was the time and you could probably be beat Bayern, you know, when the season is just starting. It, it'd be really tough in the return fixture when Bayern are at full tilt. You know, Leroy Sané probably starts that game since he's coming back from an ACL issue now. But uh, I just can't imagine how demoralizing it feels to like just be be chasing the game and like you're you're knackered after 69 minutes and you just look to the bench and you see that like Leroy Sané is coming onto the field. Like how ridiculous is that? This was the closest that Dortmund had gotten to beating Bayern in a while. You know, if we're looking at this game three years from now or two years from now, you know, Holland is a little more experienced, Sancho is a little more experienced, Reina is a little more experienced. I think maybe they take those chances. But I just think this was experience versus inexperience. And experience ended up winning out as it usually does. I mean, except you, except next time in a few years, Holland's going to be on Bayern scoring against Dortmund. So. Yeah, you, you took the word you took the words right out of my mouth, Caleb. I could see you, Nathan, preparing to make that comment, and I was like, no, 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 this is me, this is me. But that's the problem, right? Like Dortmund just rears the people that are going to obliterate them into Classicer in two years' time. It's this really terrible dynamic. Um, the irony of Leroy Sané being a former Schalke product. <laughs> he put the put the nail in the coffin uh, of Dortmund. That certainly was not lost on me. Bayern have always been able to, like ever since 2010, Bayern have always had like the most lethal group of super subs in the world. Um, probably because they're so traditionally reliant on a striker who scores, you know, 20 to 30 goals per season. It enables them to or have 50 guys. in the case yeah. of Lewandowski. Right. Or or 50. Um it helps when you have a you know ball into or winner or presumptive ball into or winner. Um, but whether it's it was Mario Goetze for two seasons or Manzukic, who was the other there was another German Mario striker. Gomez. Oh Mario Gomez. Thank you. Um they always have the ability to just like put up these crazy numbers because of their super subs even the fact that they have chuva moting as a third string striker that's like that's stupid deep this man is like this man's a fine soccer player um so byron again continue their path to european dominance once more we're gonna move on to the premier league and i think it was potentially you know a season defining week in in the premier league in many respects i think we'll start with the probably the game of the season on paper, right? Manchester City at home against Liverpool. Electric first, I think we were actually all calling for this game. And I think you can tell that uh, when we're not really focused on the game and we're talking about other things, um, that's how you know that maybe this game has run its course a little bit. And it certainly felt like that in the second half. Caleb, what did you make of, you know, really what was a game of two halves? Liverpool going with the the 4-2-4 formation. And I don't think you can say it really panned out for them. We know that they've had an abundance of injuries coming into this game. And some of this was just down in the necessity and the fact that Nabi Keita probably wasn't ready to start this one. But what did you make of the game, this this game that felt like neither team really just wanted to lose? Yeah, I mean, well, Liverpool went, you know, all out attack 
for the first 15 minutes, um, just trying to desperately look for that goal. But it really seems like there wasn't enough space for the attackers together. And also there's some uncustomarily poor decisions from like everyone, right? Like Sadio Mane was way too unselfish at times. Um, and then I think in particular, Firmino had another poor game. He didn't create any chances. He didn't have any shots, didn't have any shots on goal. And this was like the third or fourth time he's done all that together um, in a Premier League game this year. So I think, I really think we're going to see Firmino taking a little break uh, from the starting 11. We're going to see a more traditional front three because Liverpool were super manic from the get-go, but they couldn't actually put anything away. And so then once that sort of initial spurt of energy died down and not, not even to say that city played especially well, but it was just kind of like a disjointed game um, from everyone involved. And in the second half, both teams looked a little bit unsure of what they were doing on the field, a little tired straight, like just strangely uncharacteristic things to see from a Guardiola and a Klopp side that we're used to seeing so clearly trying to do something, even if it doesn't work. Um, I think the lack of a, a clear plan was was pretty stunning to see from from both sides. They just looked tired, like for the last half an hour or so. And this is something that I'll touch on. I think from the from an Arsenal perspective later on as well. But we we talk about how important it is that there was no formal preseason, and that teams that have been playing in Europe have basically been playing three games a week um, for the last month or so. Not to mention that elite teams have more players who play more games because of international duty as well. Um, But I think across Europe this week or this weekend, rather, we saw a bunch of top young players get injured like Kimmich and Ansu Fati, who we'll discuss later. um, And Thomas Partey, who's not young, but is still a top player. And I think this game uh, pretty much reflected the sort of fading energies around soccer um, and it, it really makes me question, you know, the validity of having an international break right now when people are fatigued and also injury prone, because if you're the Premier League, you look at that Man City Liverpool game and think, wow, this is not like the top product that we want from the team, the league's two best teams, right? Like, even though I thought the first like half an hour or so was pretty good after halftime, it really, really died down. And I'm not, I don't think that it has as much to do with the fact that both teams would probably settle for a point and more to do with, I don't think there's much gas left in the tank at this point. And it's really worrying when you consider the fact that the Boxing Day period that traditionally causes the most injuries and stress for clubs is coming up. Like we haven't even hit the biggest bottleneck of the season in terms of fixture congestion. Uh, congestion. We still have you know FA Cup ties coming up, not to mention that there are still uh, eight teams left in the Carabao Cup. So it's, it's going to be really messy, and I think there's going to be an increased pressure on the FA to allow the five subs and expanded substitutes bench, um, just given the, the the injury trends that should be really concerning to, to league hierarchy right now. I don't think you were the only person who was annoyed with the quality of play in the second half. I think the person who was the most annoyed actually was Jurgen Klopp, because he came out after the match and he um, <laughs> spared no kindnesses for the Premier League, and he absolutely just kind of went in on the five substitutes thing. Obviously, Klopp was a big admirer of it last season. He was one of the main people pushing for it this season. Obviously, we don't have that. And like Nathan said, every single week, it seems like we're talking about another marquee player going off with injury. This time, it was Trent Alexander-Arnold. Last weekend, it was Danny Ings. So I definitely think that the Premier League needs to take a look at altering the three subs and, and just giving giving teams two extra subs to play with. But I think Klopp also had a good point when he was talking about, especially in this fixture, in this fixture list where it's like kind of condensed and the teams that are playing in Europe are playing two games every single week, that he actually came to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's defense and said that like it was kind of ridiculous for Manchester United. Manchester United were playing Istanbul on Wednesday and for them to have to roll up to Goodison Park on Saturday. And it was the same for Liverpool a few weeks ago, whose players were playing and who's like the Brazilian players are playing in Peru on Wednesday and then they had to fly home and then go to Goodison Park on Saturday. So I think it is just, it requires a little bit more critical thinking from the Premier League. And I think that would go a long way in making sure that there aren't these injuries don't continue and the quality of play doesn't suffer. It is kind of funny though, that, you know, we're talking about why this game shows 
that we need to have five subs and yet Guardiola only made a single sub and Klopp only made two subs in this well, game. I think that's the thing, right? Is that these squads are just going to get so depleted to the point like, like Liverpool, like we had no fullbacks to bring on. Like Shimakas isn't quite ready to return fully from injury. So when Trent goes off, Milner has to come on. Milner also is someone who is coming back from injury. And like I said, the 4-2-4 felt more uh, a formation out of necessity just because Liverpool only really have two fully fit midfielders right now. The main reason that that a lot of teams were against the idea of five subs returning after Project Restart is because it supposedly would give an advantage to big clubs. But I actually think that that's something of a myth. And I was doing the math the other day because um, I was looking at some squad sizes on Transfer Market. And I realized that the teams that are playing in Europe are going to have proportionally larger squads than smaller teams that get more playing time. Because if you if you have a squad that's preparing to play 60 games in a season, like an Arsenal or a Liverpool or Man City, you're going to need more players than a team like Brighton, who are going to have you know between 38 or 39 and 45 games in a season. So the idea that teams would bigger teams would struggle less because of this size uh, is totally contrary to what is actually going to happen because all of these players are going to be under the same amount of stress. Like when the FA Cup fixture weeks come around and the Boxing Day fixtures come and you start getting midweek Premier League games, it's just it's going to be the same amount of stress that these Europa League and Champions League clubs have been having to deal with all season, um, but for smaller teams as well. So I actually think that the five subs rule equally helps bigger and smaller clubs, which I think is one of the reasonings behind them potentially redoing the rule um, midway through the season. I just think you know you're in the wrong when everyone in Europe can agree on one thing and the Premier League is the only league that's like, no, we're good with only having three subs. And I think that's 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 sort of the emphasis point that Klopp wanted to touch on is that even though like we all know the Premier League's main focus is to make money, they also have to protect the players because the, the players at the end of the day are, are the people, you know, who make the product worth watching. And it's not going to be worth watching if <laughs> Liverpool have to roll up to these big games without with an entirely depleted squad and, and they have to play academy players. Right. No one wants to see that. So I think if you are the Premier League, you do need to be a little bit more concerned about the well-being of your of your players. Shall we talk about another team with a, a player that went off injured? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can just segue right onto it because Thomas Partey went off at halftime at the Emirates and it did not go well on the day for Arsenal Football Club. They had potentially one of their greatest victories in the past you know, couple of years at Old Trafford last week. And you, know, you, you thought that this was going to be something to build off of going forward a jumping off point for this Arsenal team. We know they've had trouble scoring goals and creating chances, but in possibly, Nathan, one of the worst performances of the Mikel Arteta era in this 3-0 loss at home to Aston Villa. I would say it's, it's definitely the worst Mikel Arteta performance. Um, and it, it sort of feels like with any rebuilding team, you're going to always have the sort of one step forward, two steps back. And I think obviously winning 1-0 at Old Trafford is one step forward. And this is like four steps back. I've been trying to work on tempering my sort of knee-jerk reactions to Arsenal um, and to life in general, but mostly to Arsenal. And I think this game just showed what we already knew, which is that Arteta has set up our team to play somewhat smash and grab, right? Like we were able to convert on relatively few chances against United. When we played Liverpool and Man City well back last spring, it was the same story, or last summer, technically, it was the same story. Um, the problem is, I don't necessarily think that he trusts the players enough to um, take the handbrake off, as Arsene Wenger would say. And that's why we keep rolling up with the similarly defensive, sort of counterattacking minded lineups that don't have creative freedoms, that sees, you know, one of the league's and game's best strikers shunted out wide left. I think it's another one of the reasons that he continues to play Willian and Lacazette, despite both of them being really, really terrible so far this season. Um, Lacazette looks like he's struggling to play more than like 50 or 60 minutes. And he's never been a 90-minute player for Arsenal, but in particular this season, he looks really just unfit. And Willian just looks very average. Like he looks like a shell of his former self. 
Um, and there have been increased calls for Arteta to play someone like Reese Nelson, who has who's one of the best ball progressors in all of uh, Europe last season. Uh, and maybe guys like Joe Willick, who have looked really good at the Europa League stage. Um, but all in all, I think this performance shows that Arsenal, when they have bad days defensively, which I think yesterday was definitively a bad day, and they have a bad day offensively, bad things will happen. And credit to Villa, because I think Villa are a legit team, and I think they're actually going to end up challenging for Europa League spot. I mean, Nick, you saw firsthand what Villa can do when they sort of flip into gear. Um, and that's why I don't I don't think that this game is like symptomatic of some great meltdown at Arsenal like I did you know, last spring after the Man City game. But I think we've sort of seen the end of the honeymoon period for Mikel Arteta. And I think going into this international break, he has some real questions to answer about team selection, about the future of certain established players in the squad and sort of where to go from here. If only there were a <laughs> a veteran World Cup winning player who could come off the bench and create some chances. <laughs> Dude, this, uh, I mean, I, I kind of think I said this last week on our podcast, like Arsenal's win over Man U was kind of a mirage, right? Like it wasn't particularly impressive. And I look at their results in the Premier League over the last month, lost to Man City, lost to Leicester, win over Man U because of a penalty and drubbing by Aston Villa. This team is just mediocre. There's like no way around it. Aubameyang didn't even have a shot against Aston Villa. And I sent you guys that clip of Barkley and Jack Grealish literally looking like Ronaldinho and like... <laughs> like he was like Rivaldo and Ronaldinho dude, I was like, out there. Dude, I was like, what are you doing, Barkley? Like, what is Holding doing just jumping up and down like he's in like the holding room before a game of Warzone or Fortnite, right? Just like <laughs> just waiting to get sent to the game. Then Barkley's out there doing the stanky leg or some shit around the ball. <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> it ended up with a goal. That's the crazy thing. Like I was like, oh my god, this is insane. This is like Brazil 02. This is <laughs> Right, I'm like, oh my it's, like it's Ollie Watkins. <laughs> Caleb's having a bit of a meltdown. This, <laughs> this is Caleb. Caleb's audition for Arsenal fan TV. <laughs> I know. I was gonna say if they need a, if they need a troops, I'm, I'm a troops replacement right now. I'm actually crying. <laughs> if they oh need a troops God. replacement, <laughs> Caleb Rhodes is gonna be the guy that they go to for sound bites. No, but my point is, it's just, this team is just bad, right? Like, this team's effectively bad. Like, like you think bringing Maitland-Niles and Reese Nelson and Joe Willock is going to suddenly make you a Champions League quality team? No, my guy. Those people don't start on mid-table Premier League clubs, right? Like, let's oh be honest. <laughs> I, think, I think there's a, I don't think Arsenal are bad. I'll, I'll give Arsenal the benefit of the doubt here. I think Arteta has done a really good job at reinforcing the defensive structure of the team, right? But I think if you're playing at home to Aston Villa, if you're playing at home to Leicester City, you want to be, you know, a more progressive attacking outfit. You don't want to be playing like the away team on your own pitch, right? And I think that's just the pattern that Arsenal have locked themselves into somewhat is that, that Arteta doesn't feel like they, they have the personnel to play that expansive, progressive football without getting themselves into trouble. And I think this is tough, right? Like, if, if, you're, a, if you're a manager, you have to coach with an offensive identity, but also have, like, a plan for going behind. I feel like if, you, if Liverpool go behind, you know exactly what Liverpool are going to do to try and get themselves back into the game. Same with Manchester City. I think with Arsenal to you know, an equal extent, Manchester United, when they both go behind in games, I think all the confidence that I have in them getting back into the game completely out of the window. I just don't know if Arteta quite has figured out, you know, in his young career as a coach, how to coach from behind in these matches. And I think it's a real worry for Arsenal if they're not scoring goals at the moment. Because I think we're going to see a record number of goals this season in the Premier League. 
And if you're not like taking your share of a pie in that goal scoring, that's going to leave you in a really bad position this year. Arsenal have fewer second half shots than every single other professional team in England. So every, uh, every other team in the top four leagues, um, which is obviously a pretty damning statistic. And I have to think that part of the reason that we struggle there, I think there are two reasons why our creation numbers are, are so bad. I think one of which we play our striker as basically a fourth midfielder like Lacazette. Yes. He's playing as like a false nine. He does a lot of good defensive work sometimes. Um, but when you have, when you don't have a striker who's leading the line, um, that can cause trouble because obviously you have Aubameyang and Tierney whipping in these great crosses. Like Tierney had a great, a truly great cross for Lacazette, like on a plate that I could have finished. Uh, and Lacazette headed wide. And, and obviously the other is that we didn't get Hassam Awar and we don't have a creative player. I'm going to save the Urzel debate because I think there's no point in us discussing something that's kind of a Yeah, I think there's something, there's something a little bit more personal about the Mesut Urzel conversation. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's sort, of, but it's sort of a done deal at this point, mm-hmm. right? Like Arteta said, it's it's soccer reasons, therefore it's it's done, it's done, dusted. But I do think that that what Arteta needs to do, coming back from the break, is he needs to start playing Aubameyang through the middle, um, because even though his numbers are pretty similar from when he plays out wide for, uh, to when he plays centrally, we do have a player in Bukayo Saka who I think does more of what a winger needs to do. Uh, than what a sort of left-sided center midfielder needs to do, and that's what do you he's want been playing lately. Do you want him to abandon the three-four-three and just play more of a like expansive formation? Well, I, I think I don't mind the three-four-three. I think it's more of a personnel thing because the three-four-three becomes a four-three-three in possession. Right, and when you have a player like Saka on the wing instead of in midfield, that gives room for Granit Xhaka or Danny Ceballos or Joe Willock to come in and sort of act as another progressive player. Instead, what ends up happening is Arsenal look great at getting the ball wide. And we look great at getting the ball wide into, you know, the final third even. But without Lacazette or without Aubameyang playing centrally, there's just no out ball. So even when Tierney is playing in great crosses or Aubameyang gets the ball, he's getting the ball on the touchline at the 18. Mm. And I just think there's something to be said for the fact that he didn't have a single shot in that game and that he has an XG of less than one. I just think that sometimes it's better to lose conventionally than to win unconventionally. And I wouldn't mind seeing Arteta show some convention, if you will, by putting our best striker as a striker. Right. Well, certainly some things to figure out for Mikel Arteta when it comes to scoring goals. Certainly some things for our corner kick panelists to figure out emotionally when it comes to watching Arsenal lose. Shockingly, that's not the Arsenal fan that needs to figure that stuff out. But let us move on. (laughs) Let us move on here. Let's touch on briefly before we head to La Liga. Let's touch on Everton versus Manchester United. We had a big conversation about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on our podcast last week after they lost Istanbul. They end up getting a result here. I just want a few sentences from both of you on whether or not there's ever going to be a true moment when we can say that, like, this is the time for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to go, or is he going to keep getting these lucky results? No, I, I think that he'll... The only way he'll be forced out is if he gets throttled by, like, an, a, a bottom-side team. Like, I think if... Not an Aston Villa-type victory, but, like, if he if they go to Brighton or if Brighton, excuse me, comes to Old Trafford and puts up like five goals, that has to be it. But I do think that the that Woodward and Glazer at Co are, are a little bit more forgiving of the Bishakshi here result because of the European form that preceded it. Um, and then, of course, the fact that he's able to sort of pull a win out of his ass against Everton when his job is on the line. Literally, I saw like a, a soccer conspiracy theory that United just become like 2002 Brazil when Ole's job was on the line. Uh, and I think that so far, that's pretty much been true. Yeah, I'm not sure when exactly he, he goes. I think this Everton result is slightly flattering because, you know, Everton started the season so well, although they're trending down pretty pretty rapidly. I was going to ask point. you, you know, the closet Everton fan on this show, Caleb, you're so high on them after that first month of the season, and they are now winless since the last international break. So what is your, you know, finish your point on Manchester United, but also what do you think is going on here with Carlo Ancelotti's Everton? Yeah, so I think I think Manu played Everton at the right time. I think Bruno Fernandes, despite looking very tired, uh, 
got the goals he needed to. I think, I think Juan Mata, also his relationship with Juan Mata is clearly the way to go forward for this team. I think they both provide a lot of, a lot of, you know, sewing together the pieces for the likes of Martial and Rashford. Yeah. And I think the Fred McTominay pairing while not being obviously the like sexiest midfield Manchester United can put out. Uh, it's honestly probably the most reliable. Like you don't need to wonder if Pogba is going to like get gassed in the middle of the game and not even try to defend and you're not going to have to worry about if Donny van de Beek is just going to like, I don't know. I don't know what he does because we haven't seen him. But like <laughs> my point is the Fred and McDominay midfield, like it, it, it's the Fred and McDominay midfield. You're like, yeah, that's that's great. Uh, that's fine. Uh, on Everton, I still think this team is good. I think, as I talked about a few weeks ago, they definitely built up their ego quite dramatically and are suffering from that. But I will say that they haven't been able to play the 11 that started the season so strongly essentially since they started going on this losing streak because various players have either been suspended or out. And I think we're seeing how important Richarlison is to this side. So, but on the flip side, Hamas also definitely is, his form is, is cooling off slightly. I mean, we saw him get yanked off for Cenk Tosun, uh, which is <laughs> not, not a sentence I thought I would be saying. Never anytime. underestimate the effect of a testicle injury. On a player like Thomas Rodriguez is what I learned this weekend. Oh, sure. Uh, but I, I, I still think this Everton team is is quality. I think they just need to get their top 11 back. We're going to move on to La Liga. It was a positive result for, you know, everyone not named Real Madrid. But <laughs> we had a big conversation uh, before heading into this season about, you know, the death of Valencia football or Valencia CF. Pardon me. And the fact that they, Peter Lim, you know, their villainous owner, has sold off essentially every single asset that this club had coming into this one. They appoint Javi Gracia, who was in relegation trouble with Watford last season. Uh, they pull a 4-1 win against Real Madrid out of the fire. The off-forgotten man at Valencia, Carlos Soler, with a, ha- a penalty or a hat-trick of penalties, I think really exposing the thinness of this Real Madrid team. Obviously, Casemiro and Eden Hazard were not available for this one due to COVID-19. Caleb, I imagine you reveled in this one quite a bit. But what does this say about the La Liga title race, A, and also you know the problems that have been cropping up with this Real Madrid team that we've discussed for the past few months, it has to be said. Uh, on the La Liga title race, I think it shows that if there's a year for neither Barcelona nor Madrid to win it's this year and I think this result is a huge boon not only to teams like Sociedad and Sevilla and even Villarreal but especially for Atleti in terms of Real Madrid itself I mean I saw some stat it was like they've worn the pink kit three times and they've lost three times Um, they've also I think those three games are also the same games they've played Marcelo and I really don't think it's a coincidence that Madrid keep getting blown out when they play Marcelo and they, they just got to drop him. Like, like, they, like give him his carnival now, right? Like inside the Bernabeu with like, but they, they just have to play Ferland Mendy because this team is falling apart at the seams when he is in that defensive back line. I also think I'm getting worried. Varane is actually a broken player, right? Like I, I mm-hmm. ever since that champions league disaster class last year against man city, where he just passed the ball or what was it? Yeah, he scored he an own goal or, or a bad back pass. It it was just bad. Like he was like terrible. Like these moments of uncertainty have really creeped into his game. And it's pretty plain to see that not even Ramos can like paper over the cracks of like an aging left back an uncertain center back partnership. And then Lucas Vazquez, who by no fault of his own, just isn't actually up to it to be a right back. Um, And I think the issue for Madrid is not only are they defensively really fragile right now, but offensively, they have no freaking clue what's going on. Like it's and and Hazard, you know, as soon as he's about to come back, gets COVID, right? I, I don't know. This this Madrid team is is in bad shape. And Zidane took some responsibility, but I think his personnel have really just been letting him down too. Yeah, I think a wild stat on Varane's confidence and just overall play recently is that. He has scored two own goals in his last five games for Madrid in all competitions, which is as many as he had in his previous 324 appearances 
for Madrid. So obviously there's something going wrong with Rafael Varane. I think he looked so assured last weekend. And then just some, there is just an inconsistency factor that is cropping into this team. And I think some people have highlighted this before, but I think the importance of Casemiro to this Real Madrid team, you saw just how vital he is to their success, or he has been to their success in the past five or so years, and how much he is still vital to them, you know, putting in any type of defensive performance in games like these. I don't think we should really be surprised just considering just the way soccer has gone this season. But if there was ever a result that was going to sound the alarm bells off at the Bernabeu, it was going to be a embarrassing result like this, where they just completely shot themselves in the foot four times in a row in this game. Yeah. And I mean, we knew that Carlos Soler had a hat trick of penalties, but he actually could have had four penalties. He missed one in the 30th minute, not to mention the fact that Yunus Musa, the young, potentially uh, American uh, player, he who has been called up into Greg Burham, Burr Halter's camp for the coming two weeks. He actually I just love scored. that only, I just love that only in soccer can we call someone potentially a nationality. Yeah. And have it not be offensive, obviously, but like, but um, he's only 17 years old and he ha- he's eligible for Italy, the UK, Ghana and Spain or Ghana and the US rather. And he was an Arsenal youth player. Actually, he actually scored uh, in the 28th minute and then had the goal chalked back due to VAR. Um, so it could have been a much more embarrassing result for Madrid. Like it could have been 5-1 or 6-1. And for whatever it's worth, I do think that Valencia are the team that have like historically had Madrid's number. Uh, like I can remember back in the Andre Gomes days uh, when Madrid lost as well. I think it was like 4-2 that game maybe um, when, when Gomes scored that banger. Uh, but yeah, definitely concerning, especially as their crosstown rivals at Letty look to be the most consistent of the traditional Spanish big three, right? Like even though Sociedad are in first place right now, I don't have as much faith in them finishing the season in that spot as I do um, at Letty, just due to the quality of their players. Moving Marcos Llorente to like the wide midfield slash second striker position was inspiring. Like this man can do it all. Um, and obviously Atleti have a great tradition of center midfielders playing out wide, uh, but it really works for them for whatever reason. And Joao Felix is legit. I think we he's just found the consistency this year that he didn't have last year while demonstrating the same sort of technical ability and goal scoring touch. So Atleti, I, in my mind, are the team to be in La Liga right now. Well, I think on Joao Felix, obviously two goals and assists this weekend, playing alongside someone as ruthless as Luis Suarez can only do good things for your game. And coming up in a Simeone system defined by ruthlessness can only make him into a clinical player. And I think this was probably his most clinical performance thus far in his La Liga career. Yeah, and I think Luis Suarez is sort of as pestering and ruthless in a lot of ways as Diego Costa, but he can actually also score goals and doesn't get injured every like two and a half seconds. Um, but yeah, Jaffiex has been insane, but this Atleti team has essentially taken their, you know, defensive stalwartness. They've only conceded two goals in seven games this year, and they've become just an offensive behemoth um, with 17 goals in seven games and as Nathan said, really opening up the wing play with Marcus Urente, Angel Correa, Carrasco, Lamar. They, they just have so many options. Now they've just, you know, added Kondogbia, who is essentially like gifted to them by Valencia. And interestingly, Kondogbia now, his like combined transfer fees make him one of the like most expensive midfielders of all time. If you like add up his transfers from wherever he was in France to... I guess, Sevilla back in the day, and then to Inter, and then to Valencia. So I think that's roughly his path. But each of those moves was like 15 to 20 million. And when you add it up, you get to like $80 million in cumulative fees uh, for this man, uh, which is kind of insane. But point being, Atleti are, are fit. They're firing. They have depth. And their closest rivals are not all of those. Sometimes a subset of those, but, but not all of those at all. So I, I'm also very high on Atleti right now. Yeah, I just think in the season that's going to be defined by injuries, 
I like to have all the options that they have. Like even Barcelona right now, Ansu Fati has gone down injured and they're going to be struggling to find someone to replicate his scoring and his creativity for that team. And just look at the way that like Real Madrid are falling apart, like Caleb was saying, with having to put someone like Lucas Vasquez at right back. Kieran Trippier and Mario Hermoso have been so consistent this season at right back and left back. And even if they go down, they have options to replace them. And just, I think, in a season where there's going to be so much unpredictability, I think having a set system in times like these is just so, so important for a team to have any sort of success. So if there was any year for Atleti to cruise that La Liga title, it was going to be this season. Anyways, Caleb, this was the Usmane Dembele performance that you were looking for against Real Betis. Pops up with an extraordinary goal. Griezmann misses the penalty. You know, looks like he's going to burst into tears on the pitch. Eventually, burst into tears on the pitch. Eventually, he gets the goal for himself. Uh, Messi comes on, has an inspired 45 minutes. This looked like, this this looked way, way better than the Barcelona that, that we've uh, been accustomed to seeing for the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I think this was a good performance. And I think in a weird way, having Messi on the bench and sort of needing other players to show up um, and needing players that sort of weren't perhaps clouded by some messy negativity on the field was really good for opening it up. I still do worry about Dembele because I feel like one week he scores just absolute worldies and the next week he loses his foot somewhere on the field, um, like either literally or, or figuratively. Um, it could be either with him. Um, but all in all, I think this was a it was a very good performance. It was nice to see Sergi and Alva, you know, dishing up the assists. Pedri got his first La Liga goal. Um, Busquets, I thought, looked more confident in midfield than we've seen him. Obviously, the big miss from all this is Fati, who's out for four months now. And considering he has been one of our more consistent players this year, that's a huge loss. Um, luckily, though, this is why, you know, you have still players like Trincao and Braithwaite. And so I think we're probably going to start seeing a little more Dembele on the left wing. Um, Trincao coming off the right. I will say it was it was also good to see Griezmann getting in amongst the goals. I know he missed the penalty, but I think he actually was a lot more positive without Messi on the field in that first half in terms of creating chances for himself. Um, and eventually, the goal he did score was the result of just excellent link-up play with Messi, where Messi completely faked out the entire team and dummied it so that Griezmann, you know, could only score. Like there was really no no opportunity to miss it there. So in general, I think this was largely a moralizing win, um, save the the Fati injury. But I, I'm curious to see if we can kind of bring this energy forward um, in our next few games, especially following the international break. Yeah, and just on Dembele, I think I'm a little bit more confident in his ability to be a consistent producer for this team this season, just because I think the big issue is that in the past couple of years, since his move to Barcelona, and really since his rise, in Liga, moving to Dortmund, then moving to Barcelona for, you know, an ex- a, probably a more expensive fee than he was probably justified to at that time. I just think that now, you know, with the additions of Griezmann, with like all the off-field drama with Messi, with Bartomeu, I think Dembele can get on with things a little bit without all that scrutiny. And I think that can only be good for him, right? And we've seen that these performances have come, you know, under from Dembele, you know, these scoring performances, these performances where you've come on the podcast and said, I've been a little, a little bit more impressed with them. They've come under the backdrop of a lot of turmoil for the club. So I think, you know, if there's not those kinds of distractions for him, I think he can end up being worth that money. Because I still think he's got an abundance of potential. I definitely think he's real. I think the hype is real for a player like Dembele. And I think he offers Barcelona a little, something a little bit more direct on the wing than perhaps they have in that squad right now. So I'm a little bit more, I'm glad that he's doing well and I'm glad that he scored that goal, but I just think that he can definitely produce something for Barca this season. Yeah. I mean, I, I want think, him to. Yeah. I, I think he'll, I think he'll need to just because Fati has been carrying probably far more of the goal scoring burden than people have expected him to. Uh, and I think it's tough because you have someone who's, you know, a, a, there are a lot of young players uh, who are getting over relied on for minutes, both at the national team level and at the club level. Like Fati played, I want to say he played like 120 minutes of total soccer last international break, plus 
pretty much starting every single game, uh, maybe bar one for Barca. That's a lot of wear and tear on someone whose body is just not fully developed yet. Um, it's a lot of wear and tear on a full, on like a full-time professional like Thomas Partey or any of the other players who have pulled up with injuries lately. So I think it's it's damaging. But I also wonder if this might potentially open the door for someone like Conrad de la Fuente to make a small appearance off the bench at one point. Uh, I know he's probably not the most exciting talent La Masia has ever produced, but he uh, certainly is someone who would bring more American eyes to Barcelona if uh, if such a thing was possible. Yeah, and I, there's just one other game I want to touch on from La Liga, and it is more of a conversation as we head towards another international break, tint, tint, kind of tainted by the COVID aspects a little bit. And this was a game between Real Sociedad and Granada. And Granada, talk about a team that has been ravaged by COVID in the past couple of weeks. They came into this game only having, I think, four eligible players or seven eligible players. I think it was four. I really think it was four. They only had something like four eligible players coming into this game due to a bevy of positive coronavirus tests. Um, You know, God bless Real Sociedad that it, it has come out today that they're not going to press any sort of charges against Granada because I think even they probably knew that this game shouldn't have been played. Um, but what do you guys think, you know, just looking at this game, looking at the fact that Granada had to field several uneligible players due to COVID, and just as Nathan was alluding to, we're heading towards another international break. And I've checked Twitter today, and like Mohamed Salah is at his brother's wedding in Cairo, and it looks like there's no social distancing going on whatsoever. So, you know, just taking that game as a uh, a, a jumping-off point for how worried we are about another international break when it comes to COVID. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's the same thing that we talked about when we talked about the, uh, the Juve Lazio scenario where a provincial government denied a team the right to play and officials, what did I say? Lazio. Oh, sorry. Juve Napoli where you had wrong blue team, uh, where you had, you know, the government deny a team the right to play and then the footballing association being like, well, rules are rules. You didn't show up. So, uh, and, and fair play to Sociedad for not just like refusing to play and then claiming victory on moral grounds, which is sort of what Juve did in a sort of dickish move, I think, by a dickish club uh, in general. But again, it's totally ridiculous that the league authorities aren't just putting the kibosh on all of these potentially truly dangerous things like the international break or uh you know teams being forced to play when they can only field 13 players and i will say there have been a ton of false positives right now like six rb salzburg players who were forbidden from joining their team on national duty uh just today tested negative after testing positive two days ago so i wonder if some of the hastiness around procuring these tests has led to a slightly higher rate of false positives, or if it's just that, you know, when you're testing, you know, five, whatever it is, 5,000 elite players across the continent, you're going to be bound to see a couple high profile cases, but it seems like there are a lot of things at play right now. And I just wish there was a bit more top-down leadership from governments, particularly from footballing authorities, because clearly UEFA isn't going to be the one to bite the bullet and postpone these international breaks or these dangerous games. Yeah, I think there are kind of like two issues here. One is clearly international breaks are just a way to spread disease broadly throughout the world, which is not what we want to be doing objectively. Uh, But in terms of more of like a sporting question in domestic leagues, it just seems a little unfair to me where like teams are following health protocols and then they get positives because right, we're in a global pandemic and then they're told those players can't play, but then there's no protocols to like help the team at all. Right? Like, it just seems like unfair to like threaten them. Like it, it seems unfair for a Liga or Serie A to like threaten these teams with a three nil forfeit loss because like they're doing the responsible thing and, you know, trying to prevent the spread of disease, even if they turn out to be like false positives sometimes. And it seems like we need some way to postpone games or reschedule them because once again, it's not like COVID's going to disappear tomorrow. We've now seen this happen in two leagues. We've seen many teams throughout Europe lose a player or two, and there's no sort of a priori reason why it should only be one player and not 10. 
um, especially because these people are training together all day. And so it seems like we're just like, you know, one outbreak of like three or four teams in one league away for this system to clearly be shown to like not work, right? Like it's complete luck right now that it's only like one team at a time that is facing this problem and not like five Premier League teams, right? Um, and it, at the end of the day, it also dilutes, you know, we're trying to still create a fair sporting environment even this in this pandemic world. And if you're forcing teams to play completely weakened lineups so that they can protect public health, then that throws into question the validity of, you know, the leagues themselves in, in the same way we were questioning the legitimacy of restarting the leagues in the spring. And so I think for both public health and sporting reasons, you know, we need to find some way to not punish teams for being respectful and responsible. And I know this will never happen just because of the financial implications of this, but if you're Serie A, La Liga, the Premier League, the Bundesliga, less so, because we know they take a little bit more precaution in Germany, it is okay. It is okay to have one less game on a weekend. Like there is no world where this Real Sociedad versus Granada game should have been played. And it's not like two teams having a game in hand is, you know, a totally foreign thing to soccer. Like if you look at the Premier League, there are three teams, Aston Villa, Manchester United, Man- Manchester City, that have a game in hand on the rest of the league. Just do the safe thing, do the common sense thing. If there is a situation like Granada where they're only able to field like less than a full strength 11 of first team players, postpone the game. You have a full slate of other games for that very reason. You know, I just think in these situations, and even like Jurgen Klopp said that if like a national team system doesn't have proper protocol for COVID when the player is traveling to go meet up with the national team, that the club team should be able to just override the national team selection and not send players to like go meet up with the national team. That should totally be done. Cause I think it is unfair for these club teams to be taking all the precautions possible only to, you know, have their fingers crossed for an entire two weeks and pray that like one of their star players doesn't test test positive for COVID due to, you know, a lax COVID uh, social distancing system or protocol system at the international level. Well, anyways, on that note, we hope nothing super serious happens in regards to soccer. We hope we still have soccer to talk about when the international breaks uh, end in two weeks and our beloved club game resumes. But we will be with you regardless. That has been Corner Kick from this very newsworthy week, both in soccer and in the world. I've been Nick Vinden. Caleb Rhodes. Really? Nathan Strong. <laughs> And we will see you all next time. End the recording. End it.